everybody. Eve Harrow, Rejuvenation on the Land of Israel Network. Sorry about last week. I was insanely busy guiding. I'll talk about that at some other point. But uh, today I'm back. Today being Sunday, December 18th, 2022. Hanukkah starts this evening, the Festival of Lights. And you would never know that it was winter here in Jerusalem. We've had a couple of absolutely magnificent weeks. So, um, yeah, so we're hoping for the rain, but in the meantime, enjoying the sunshine. But today finds me in a beautiful building in, in the center of Jerusalem, uh, the Armstrong Institute. And I'm here with somebody that I've been in touch with on and off over the years, uh, Brent let me get this right, Nagtagal, I think, yeah, I got it, um, because it seems like in the last week or so, there's been a flurry of these unbelievable discoveries, like we find the, we just heard about the wooden box with the coins in it that just precedes the revolt against the Seleucids, that's what Hanukkah is all about, and then there were the interpretations of some inscriptions, maybe from Hezekiah, the king, and on the tunnel, that up until now we weren't sure if we had built, because we didn't really find proof with his name on it, there's all this crazy stuff going on, and so I decided that if there was going to be a week that I was going to devote to the finds in archaeology in Israel, this is going to be it. So Brent, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day uh, to join me here. No problem at all. Thanks for having me on your show. First of all, what is the Armstrong Institute? Let's get a little background. Right. So the Armstrong Institute uh, basically supports archaeological excavations here in Israel. We're a new institute, at least by that name, but our history goes back about 50 years um, with uh, Herbert W. Armstrong and uh, Ambassador College, a university from the United States, and he supported excavations of Benjamin Mazar, a really famous archaeologist, president of Hebrew University in the 60s and 70s. Uh, and then since that time, basically students have come over every summer from the United States to dig and volunteer on excavations. The Armstrong Institute picked up the banner um, of Mr. Armstrong, and we send students to... Israel to dig and have done on the excavations of the late Dr. Elot Mazar. And uh, ever since she died, basically, we decided that we're going to establish an official Institute of Archaeology here in Jerusalem to continue the important work of digging the areas that she started um, or continued on with in, in, in ancient Jerusalem. So how does that work? I mean, we have the Israel Antiquities Authority, and we have different universities that, that come in here working either with Israeli archaeologists or not. And my listeners know over the years I've interviewed quite a few archaeologists, including Dr. Elat Mazar, mm -hmm. who was really an incredible woman. I remember hearing when she passed away. She was 64. I said, no, it just it can't be. She was really, really special. And, of course, the granddaughter of Dr. Benjamin Mazar, who was the first person to get – he got the first license for digging in the, in the nascent state of Israel. And I just have to tell my listeners, because they can't see, that I'm sitting in their personal libraries, They uh, that you bought their both their libraries. And for me, I am just in heaven, because I'm looking at these books. I have Dr. Elat Mazar's personal Tanakh with little pieces of paper in it, like mine, um, right next to me. And it's just, it's a super honor to be here, I have to say, and in some way be involved. So what is that? What is it like? Are you associated with the government? Are you associated with the United States? Are you totally independent? How does that work? Right. So so we, um, there's a United, in the United States, in Oklahoma, we're based there. This is uh, Herbert W. Armstrong College by the same name. And we send over students for digs here in Jerusalem, fund the excavations as well. So this is kind of an arm of that, of that uh, university. And we don't um, go it alone. We are always working in tandem with Hebrew University. Mm -hmm. And that's why we've worked with 
Benjamin Mazar, Yigal Shalom in the 80s in the city of David, Eilat Mazar in the OFL in the city of David, and now after Eilat's death, we're working alongside Professor Uzi Levener. He's the head of the Institute of Archaeology at Hebrew University in Jerusalem, and also with Yossi Garfinkel as well, hopefully in the future in the same area. Really a couple of wonderful archaeologists, top of their game uh, in their respective periods, Uzi Levener being more focused on the classical period, uh, which is the last dig that we did in this just this past summer, and uh, Professor Garfinkel more back to prehistory and yes. and the biblical period, early biblical period as well in terms of the United Monarchy. So we're looking forward to working with both of those. So basically, we bring a lot of the, we bring the funds, we bring diggers. And they bring some of the academic uh, auspices underneath Hebrew University. They sign the license with the Antiquities Authority. And together, uh, we excavate and help out with the publishing of the finds. Mm -hmm. So if someone's listening and says, wow, this is like, sounds like something my son would love to do. How does one go? I assume they're archaeology students. It's a Christian school. How, how exactly does one get accepted to your program? Yeah, it's a liberal arts school, but it is uh, uh, the people that come there do have a firm foundation in the, in the Bible. Um, those that come to Jerusalem to participate in the archaeological digs obviously have an interest in digging in Jerusalem, as so many people in the world do. Um, but if people want to excavate, actually, this next season, there is a Hebrew University is, is opening it up to more of the public. Um, and so they can sign up and, and volunteer to excavate one of the weeks as well. Mm-hmm. The digs are usually in the summer, correct? Yeah, they are now. With, with, yeah. with uh, Professor Levener, he's, he's, he teaches full-time during the year, and so summer opens up digs. Mm-hmm. Elat Mazar was different. She dug whenever she got a license, and so that meant sometimes we're digging through winter, eight months straight. Like I remember digging in the city of David in 2007 in the winter, snow, snowing. And we were still at the dig. Now, we got to go home early, but <laughs> <laughs> but so diff- it varies. But generally these days, uh, unless it's a salvage excavation that's run by the Antiquities Authority themselves, kind of they want to do a construction project and they've got to dig as fast as they can, they, they can be any time of the year and they start and they finish when the project's done. If it's a, a different excavation, like an expedition to a historic ancient site, um, they are generally six weeks, four weeks, something like that, and generally in the summer. Okay, so before we get into what's been found, your personal history, you don't sound like you're from Oklahoma. No, no. I grew up in Australia uh, and then went to the United States when I was 19. I went to uh, Herbert W. Armstrong College in Oklahoma, and they had the archaeological program. Uh, so then I ended up traveling over here. And actually, that was started in 2006 to work on Elat Mazar's dig. Um, and then while I was over here, I had some visa issues, as many people do some <laughs> at, at times. And so I had to stay in Israel for about a year and a half. And so I just worked with a lot through that period. And then I eventually got back to the States, completed the studies. And then since that time, I've basically come back to Israel every time there's a, a dig now employed by the college and now the institute. And now I'm based here full time. Amazing. Quite a trip. I don't yes. think something you could have imagined back in 2006. No, not at all. I, I'm happy where it's ended up for sure. Um, but yeah, couldn't imagine that I'd be full time in this. Right. Okay. So tell us, we were in touch last week in about a half shekel coin. Yeah, this has just come to light. It was unearthed uh, in our excavation with, uh, with uh, Hebrew University uh, this past summer. And it's a half-shekel coin that comes from the period of the Great Revolt against the Romans. 
people might be familiar with these coins, uh, the revolt coins, year one, year two, year three, year four, and year five, some from the very last year, the very beginning of that year. Now, we found a lot of these coins on our past excavation, uh, bronze uh, revolt coins all the way up to the fourth year of the revolt. So going up to 69 CE, they were found, many of them, in a destruction layer in the 70 AD or 70 CE destruction layer. So and this is in the Ophel? This is in the area just south of the Temple Mount? Yeah, just south of the Temple Mount. Basically, if people are familiar with Jerusalem and they're familiar with the city of David further to the south, and then you've got the southern wall of the Temple Mount, mm-hmm. that area is called the Ophel in between. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there, right there, about 60 meters south of the southern wall of the Temple Mount, found destruction layer from 2,000 years ago. And inside that destruction layer, the coins themselves from that were minted in Jerusalem in the year, in the couple of years pre- up to the, its destruction. Now, now, why is it important that they were minted in Jerusalem? Well, I think this is they're minted in Jerusalem at this point because this is where you have the leadership of the revolt before this time. And if you're talking about the the half shekel. Uh, itself, the silver half shekel that was used as a temple tax, if you like. Mm-hmm. Um, Dr. Yoav Fahi, he was a numismaticist. I think that might be it. Anyway, he yes. studies the coins. Yes, I think that's how it's pronounced. <laughs> and he was talking about just last week, and he wrote about in the press release how that up until um, around this period in the years, just up to during the revolt, the, the silver half shekel was a coin that was minted in Tyre, and they used to bring that forward to pay uh, once a year, this this temple for the temple service, and that changed when um, the Jews revolted against the Romans. The striking their own coinage was a sign of 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 independence, mm-hmm. as they would see it. And you know, you could remove the some of the um, the pagan figures and put your put your own uh, iconography on it, the own your own uh, symbols. So they um, took some of the original coins and struck over them. They made coins, uh, original coins. What did they do exactly? Yeah, th- they made original coins. They didn't strike. Sometimes they do do that as a sign of rebellion as well. Strike over the old mm-hmm. one, tell tell everybody that we are, we are rebelling. No, these were, I'm not sure actually where they sourced the silver, where they melted down. I'm not sure about that. Um, but these were minted in Jerusalem fresh. Yeah, because the coins from Tyre are seen as the highest level. I think they were 97% silver, and that was considered the gold standard, if you will, of the silver half-shekel coin. So other things have been found. I think this kind of got lost in all the other things that were talked about last week, and I thought it was really a shame because, I mean, that's a sign of the temple, and that's what everyone had to pay. And the site that you're digging in is just a phenomenal site. I mean, I remember um, being there with Elat and seeing what was going on there. I believe she found a gold gold menorah, like a little mm-hmm. plaque that had a gold menorah on it from the Byzantine period, which opened up this whole idea that the Jews maybe were there, even when the Christians uh, were controlling Jerusalem. And some, can you maybe tell us about, I don't know, are they called Bule, the Hezekiah and Isaiah? Yeah, yeah, sure. So these were unearthed actually in 2009, 2010, just a short eight weeks dig season uh, on the Ophel and really in a couple of tiny patches of dirt. Um, these are seal impressions. They're, they're kind of akin to what you would see in the Middle Ages with somebody sealing a letter. They're using hot wax and they put their ring down to, to sign it. Well, back in the period of the biblical period, they used clay and then uh, still you know, sealing a document. And so we find actually quite a lot of these when we're digging in this period in the Ophel in the city of David. Everything that we dig in the, these periods is wet sifted meaning we don't just put it, the dirt through a dry sift, we actually spray it down with water, which opens up 
um, the discovery, of, uh, an absolute game changer that started, you know, only 20 years ago, right. less than 20 years ago yeah. with the city of David. And, and so, you know, in 2009 and 10, these artifacts, well, we sent everything for sifting in these couple of areas. Uh, and then we found, I think, 20 or 30 bullae, but not all of them had biblical personalities, the names of biblical personalities written on them. And, and so after the study, it was revealed that one of them in 2015 had uh, King Hezekiah's name on it. It's an absolutely beautiful seal impression. Uh, it's got, it's, it says, belonging to Hezekiah, Ahaz, son of Ahaz, Malek, Judah. Like, it's all there. <laughs> Everybody can read it. There's not a single biblical scholar, not a single, let's say, person that doesn't believe in the theology of the Bible that doesn't agree that this is King Hezekiah's seal impression, found in the right context. This is not found in a layer from, from 300 years after Hezekiah. It was found in a layer from King Hezekiah. And so it all matches up so perfectly. And here we are in, in, in ancient Jerusalem. The Ophel, a lot used to call the royal acropolis mm-hmm. of the kings of Judah. And, you know, this, the Hezekiah Buller itself was found beside a massive wall with massive stones that dates to just before King Hezekiah's time. Um, and so this, this is somewhat neglected corner, I think, in yes. in. Um, on the tourist park there uh, on the OFL. Uh, hopefully that'll change in the near future. Um, but if anyone walks past this road that goes around the Temple Mount from the city of David and you go around the east side of the Temple Mount and you walk on the footpath on the inside of the road and you just look to your left there, you'll find massive walls, massive remains, some of the biggest you'll find anywhere in Israel actually from this period. And that's where King Hezekiah, King Hezekiah's bulla was found. And then in 2018, so three years later, after further study, the Elat released a, a second seal impression. And this one says, belonging to Isaiah. And then it has Navi written there. Now, part of it on, the, on one side of it, it's smudged by a fingerprint. <laughs> and so there's a couple of letters that are missing, one of them being the very important Aleph uh, that is at the end of prophet in Hebrew. And so there has been some back and forth of whether it was uh, belonging to Isaiah the prophet or Isaiah uh, with a lot that, that um, has some funny last name that looks mm-hmm. like prophet or could be prophet mm-hmm. or from a town of Nov. Um, but, I mean, what Elat said is, how is it that I'm digging in the same layer that I found the Hezekiah one? We're about three or four meters away from where we found the Hezekiah one. Um, and Isaiah and Hezekiah mentioned about 20 times in the same verse in the Bible. These people, they, they were together all the time. And so, yeah, she thought, what could it be that it is not right. Isaiah the prophet? Right. Yeah, no, I mean, that's that whole story of uh, when the Assyrians are coming, and according to the Bible, there's a miracle, and Sancheriv goes the other way, but, but Isaiah is the prophet. And, of course, Isaiah is the prophet for so many of us. He's the prophet of messianic times and of hope. He's an interesting, he's an interesting personality. And, of course, Hezekiah is the only king who rebels against the Assyrians who remains on his throne. So whether what he did was right or wrong is up to debate. But it's a fascinating time in the Bible. And this is first temple period. Right. All right, what we're talking about, just to make order for people, the half shekel is second temple period. There is no coinage at all in the first temple period. Coins don't begin until the beginning of the second temple period. So what you're going to find are the boule, which is the equivalent to, you know, I guess you could say in terms of identity identifying somebody, the coin. Um, 
And so this is hundreds of years before that half shekel, like 700 years yeah. before, which is just totally wild. I love that corner. And I agree with you that a lot of people, it is neglected. It's a little bit further away from the paths that people are taking. The access isn't so easy. You have to come into the Davidson Park and go all the way out to the corner, but then people are tired. But it's first, I mean, there, there's such a dearth of first temple remains because so much of it was destroyed. I mean, it's been a long time um, that it's just totally fascinating, as you said, to see the large stones there in the gate. Maybe it was the water gate. Maybe it's how they brought water up for the libation ceremony to the temple. It's a crazy place. I mean, and some of the pottery that was found there from that time. So exciting. Yeah, I think if you're going to come to Jerusalem and you're interested in, whether you live here or you're from abroad, and you're interested in the early biblical period relating to the kings of, of, of Judah, uh, specifically King Solomon's period onwards, I mean, you have to go here. This is the best place in Jerusalem to go to see the walls, massive gatehouse, um, especially if you haven't been here since 2009 and 10. There's been more that was uncovered and revealed that you'll see the grandeur of some of these really high preservations of walls going up five meters in height, mm-hmm. sitting on bedrock. Um, so this is where it's at uh, if people want to see you know, the period of, of Solomon, I think, in Jerusalem. So, I mean, before we started uh, talking, we were talking about King Hiram, because, of course, when two people meet in Jerusalem, they start talking about King Hiram of Tyre, who lived 3,000 years ago. Um, no, but we were, we were talking a little bit, and I'd like you to uh, elaborate on that, because one of the things that Eilat Mazar was famous and infamous for was her identification of the building, not in that area, but in the city of David, like, I don't know, 50 meters maybe to the south of that, that she identified as King David's palace. And, of course, that's pre-King Solomon, and David doesn't build the temple. King David has his palace. King Hiram of Tyre, fascinatingly enough, sends him stonemasons and people to work on it, while King Solomon has to buy things from the next King Hiram of Tyre, which, you know, when you look at something that's almost the same, the verses in the Bible, look at the difference, and that's the story. So if Solomon had to buy it and King David was given it, something's going on here. King David is somehow more powerful or King Hiram likes him more, maybe heard about Goliath or whatever it is. But there's an interesting switch there. And King Solomon, you know, is of course building the temple. But but what what did she think? I mean, at the time, you know, for a long time, she thought it was David's palace, but you were saying that maybe there was a little tweak there towards the end of her life? Yeah, I mean, this this is an amazing um, journey of discovery, King David's palace. I, I think she she first published her piece in ninety six or ninety seven, saying that in Biblical Archaeology Review, saying this area in the northern part of the city of David is where we should find King David's palace. And this was based on a scripture in Second Samuel five that talks about how David, when the Philistines came, went down towards uh, the fortress. And so she said, "Well, Jerusalem's ge- geography is really easy to." Uh, well, somewhat uh, easy to to figure out how you can go down to something. You have to. You're coming from higher ground, and so if we know where the fortress was that David went to, then his palace is likely where he's coming from, which is probably just to the north or further, just up the hill. So she believed that, with everybody else, actually, that the fortress of Zion that's mentioned in that that verse, uh, a Jebusite fortress, meaning the people that were before David, was at the stepstone structure area and just above it. And so she originally said that I want to dig in this area uh, just north of that and I'm going to find David's palace. And everybody was very upset about this. Uh, It took her about 10 years to actually find funding to to dig it. Um, And then when she did get a license, it was actually just 
actually slightly north than where she first thought, or slightly south actually from when she first thought King David's palace was. She was actually digging on the area just above the stepstone structure where she thought the fortress of Zion was. So for everyone that says that she found what she was looking for, she actually dug a little bit further away. And she ends up in 2005 saying, I have found King David's palace based on the pottery. Now, I would say it was probably up for debate whether it was from David's time in 2005. But subsequent seasons in 2006, 7, uh, and 8 really did confirm the dating of this structure, massive structure, to around 1000 a th- a BCE, continuing perhaps for another 10 years. And that's the accepted time of David, because I know that from the middle of the 9th century back, that's where the arguments lie, right? right. About David, about Solomon, if they even existed, although that's kind of been put to bed, at least when it comes right. to David. Solomon, we haven't yet found anything with his name on it. Right. We will one day, hopefully. But David, House of David, for sure. Yeah. But that's pretty much accepted around minus 1,000. Yeah, I think nowadays, I think you'll find that most people that came out originally and said this is a Hellenistic period structure mm-hmm. or something like that, they'll all say, okay, that was wrong. We do have a big building here, and it does date to around 1,000. Let's put it put it there. Maybe there's a window of of 80 years in which mm-hmm. it was built based on the, the date of the stuff underneath the structure and then the date of the stuff against the structure once it's put there. So Dr. Mazar believed that this was the palace that King Hiram built um, towards right towards the end of her life based on further evidence that came out. Um, she didn't say it wasn't Davidic. She said that because Hiram only came into power, according to her, right at the end of David's reign, and this building looked like it was b- built at the start of David's reign, that was probably a Davidic structure, a Davidic palace, but perhaps just before the palace was, uh, Haram palace version uh, was built. It was the simpler palace before they got fancy. Yeah, that's what I think she she mm-hmm. thought of. I think of late, there's actually been an interesting academic paper that's come out from a scholar in, in California that said that, well, the dating of Haram's reign is actually not as rigid as perhaps even Elot Mazar thought. And so... Uh, I, I would say the, the jury is still out. I think it's probably too hasty to do away with that. Uh, <laughs> What's that dating based on or whom? Right. So the, the dating of, of Hiram is based on Josephus, uh, that the general accepted dates of Hiram. Who well. lived a millennia later. Right. right. And, and so, you know, there's lots of people that will poo-poo Josephus. I'm a Josephus fan, <laughs> mainly. Mm-hmm. Um, but when he's, when he's talking about things he was an eyewitness to, yes. Uh, but when he's talking about things that a threat happened a thousand years earlier and he disagrees with himself within his different writings about that, I would say that it would be too hasty to just throw out your your designation of a building because of uh, Josephus's dating. There's no other uh, corresponding evidence like from Phoenicia itself. I mean, today's Lebanon is more or less the olden time Phoenicia. They didn't we haven't really found many inscriptions from them. No, we, we have set found some, but again, how are you going to pin a date to it from, a, from back in that time period? Um, it, it, it is difficult. And it, we have more sources than Josephus. He mentions them, uh, but they're all in his work. So he culled the sources and brought them together. Um, so, you know, if, it's, I think it's quite amazing, actually, because if you look at the biblical chronology of, of when Hiram said to have built David's palace, I mean, David conquers the city, David waxes strong, 
David builds a palace with Haram's help. Like if you look, just read the biblical account there, it looks like he was built early on. Mm -hmm. And that's what, you know, this other scholar comes out and says, well, the biblical, uh, and he's not even, uh, well, he's he's a very interesting uh, person. Todd Bolin is his name. Um, And he just put it out there. Yeah. yeah, he put it out there and he said, let me get some feedback on this. And so far, he hasn't received any negative feedback as far as I'm concerned about wow. it. That's so funny. I pushed back a little bit with, with Elat um, right towards the end of her life and just said, well, if you look at the biblical chronology, it does seem that David's palace is built at the beginning of his reign, even though mm-hmm. it does mention Hiram. So is, it, is there a chance, you know, that the dating for Hiram is a little bit off? And, and I think her whole career up to that point is based in, She's a Phoenician expert. I mean, she's, that was what she did her doctorate on. Uh, on. And so, um, so uh, she, to give up on, a, on, a, on, a, on a, such an important benchmark into her research, I think, um, might have been a bit much. Mm-hmm. Um, however, there is a bit of disagreement. Right. I, think, I think the big takeaway is, though, she still believed it was David's palace. <laughs> let's not, let's not right. do away with that. Right. She's still firmly... Before the renovation or after right. the renovation, right. exactly. but yeah. And it was the archaeological evidence as it comes out, and this is a great scholar, the more evident... If she was held to her beliefs, like people would say, like a religious fanatic, even though she wasn't religious, um, why would she, you know, bring back the dating maybe 20 years or 15 years? Mm-hmm. It was based on more evidence that comes in, a metallurgy report or something that pushes the dating of the structure back 10 or 15 years. Right. And so she's willing to to give up on her most precious, most prized um, theory based on a little bit more scientific effort, uh, evidence. And I say there's plenty of scholars out there today that would not do that. Uh, yeah, I can name a few just off the top of my head who – will go to their grave saying, no, no, I was right, even when all the evidence starts piling up. Look, archaeologists have egos just like anybody else. And the truth is, I've said to more than one archaeologist, you should probably write your reports in pencil. I don't know if anybody writes in pencil anymore. Because in 10 or 15 or 20 years, something might come up that will change it. So, uh, but it's, you know, it's about the science. I mean, it's interesting what you mentioned here, because that's really, there's a huge debate between the people who go to dig with the Bible in hand looking to prove the Bible, others who go with the Bible in hand looking to disprove the Bible. So where do you think she fell into that category? Yeah, she didn't do, like, I think even that notion, people go to, you know, dig and you you find what you find and you can interpret it um, through a historical source. And and she used the Bible uh, in a way to help her before she started excavating, she got all the historical sources together, the Bible and others, and she said, what should I expect to find here? Mm-hmm. Or is it worth my money? Is it worth my time to excavate this location? Okay, so what should be there based on the historical sources? Mm-hmm. And then she starts excavating, and it either fits with what the Bible says or it doesn't fit with the Bible. I mean, it's not like you can plant evidence right. <laughs> in an archaeological dig. Right. Uh, and so, and you're always dealing, I think, with you know percentages of probability on an archaeological dig. Mm-hmm. What, where does the weight of evidence lie? And if you're digging in Jerusalem, I, uh, I mean, what do you what do you expect to discover? Do you do you expect to to find things that would support the historical the best historical source that we have? That even if you believe that the the Bible was written later, you know, some of these accounts, what were they written? Three hundred years after David, four hundred years after David? That's not long. We give a lot more credence to to historians like Josephus or even Egyptian Manetho that are mm-hmm. writing about things a thousand years earlier than we would the biblical mm-hmm. authors. 
And so she said, what's the best tool that we have in excavations in the land of Israel or we have the Bible? That's the best historical source. And so I'm going to dig in the land of the Bible and then I'm going to read the source. Right. And if I have something that matches, I'll talk about it. Right. And, and she, she had a saying that she wanted to let the stones speak. This is something that she said. It's the name of our magazine based on what she, what she said. And that means giving voice to stones. You could excavate the same areas that Elotmazai excavated and not call it the Solomonic Quarter. You could excavate the same areas and say it wasn't Davidic. So what are you going to say? Okay, I have something that was built from 2,900 years ago and it's a nice building and it's this and it's that. Or you can put it alongside the historical source and say, well, who lived here 2,900 years ago? Mm -hmm. This is now a stone that matches a story uh, from the Bible. And so I'm not... I'm. I'm not going to make the stones be silent. I'm going to be willing to give voice to the historical source that aligns with what I've discovered here in Jerusalem. And that's what she did so well. Yeah, yeah. She was really an amazing woman. You know, you say let the stone speak, but ironically, crazily enough, um, there's a lot more than the stone speaking now. I mean, archaeology used to be mainly about the stones and the pottery, and if you found as you said, the clay boule. Mm -hmm. I mean, epigraphy, finding something written is probably the most exciting thing. Who wrote it? What language? When? How? But, um, but now that you have archaeobotany, arche botanical archaeology, archaeobotany, whatever it is, where you can start examining seeds and organic material, it, and forget carbon-14 even, I think that's already to some degree passe, or you mentioned before metallurgy, because I dug uh, during COVID when I wasn't guiding very much in, the, in Givati, mm -hmm. in an area that's across the street from there, in one of the buildings that had co collapsed in a major fire when the first temple was destroyed in minus 586. And they were able to later on correlate exactly the day because of the metal in the copper. It's like the world has really opened up. How does this institute fit, you know, fitting in with that, with all that, that whole scientific side that you never had before? Yeah, I mean, we don't, the institute itself doesn't engage in the, the hyper laboratory okay. work. Um, we will definitely report and support on that with, with bodies to help the experts at Hebrew University and mm -hmm. elsewhere. Um, but you're right. Like the tools in an archaeologist toolkit now are unbelievable. If you're talking about archaeomagnetism, even wow. this was just a paper that was studied um, that that looked at several different um, destruction layers throughout Israel and, and was able to show based on this, the uh, magnetic signature of the pottery vessels that were, just, that were in the fire and how they moved which of these destructions happened at the same time throughout all Israel. And it settled some big archaeological yes. questions. And apparently there's a lot more archaeological questions that can be settled oh, sure. through this and will be in the next uh, year yeah, or so. Because the layer of destruction doesn't tell you necessarily who destroyed it, which is one of the issues like when Joshua comes in with the nation, like in Chatzor, which the right. other Finkelstein right. talked about, Yisrael Finkelstein, right? That, I mean, how do we date when we come in, which is another big issue. If there's a layer of destruction in Chatzor of like minus 1250, something like that, but the biblical record perhaps is pushing it a little earlier. So that's been one of the big questions. So, yeah, like yeah. how do you know who destroyed it? Yeah, there's, I, think, I think it's absolutely amazing, actually, <laughs> to live in this age where you have more than the I pottery. think it's God, frankly. <laughs> well, yeah, I think – and every little bit of evidence is – every little bit of uh, – every tool that comes out that, that 
you know, th this excavation you were involved in, they talked about how they, they found uh, recently, they found, you know, these crushed vessels that were found in the destruction and they had wine in them and they found that they had vanilla that was lacing the, the wine, which makes opens up the whole trade network. Where did they get vanilla at right. that time? And so just the, the color that can be put to the archaeological picture now is phenomenal. And I think if you're interested in the land of the Bible, I think you can, you have many more tools to correlate it with the biblical text yeah. or not. Right. If it doesn't, I mean, right. there's this, the, 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 the ability to be more precise in archaeology is, is growing. And so you'll be able to uh, corroborate biblical narratives or not based mm -hmm. on this evidence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, one of the things that I see is when I used to guide the city of David years ago, I didn't see so many very religious people there. And now I do all the mm -hmm. time. And which is telling me that the things were, most of the things we're finding are corroborating the Torah, not not saying that it isn't there because if somebody just wholeheartedly believes in the Bible and doesn't want to look right or left or be que or have any questions, if they're there, then it's looking good in terms of that. Um, but also, I mean, I know that there's plenty of things that don't corroborate and that's fine too. And then you have to ask, you know, why not? And maybe someone was from somewhere else or somebody was bringing things in that we didn't know about. Uh, and But the whole thing with the food. Mm -hmm. And I understand that there were grape seeds that were found in that corner of the Ophel, near where Solomon's gates were, that were very badly burnt, right? They could, but they were put aside, if I'm correct, because maybe in 10 or 15 years, the science will then be able to figure out what's in there that we can't do today? Yeah, they are put aside. Mm -hmm. And uh, many of them were sent to different labs around the world to get some carbon-14 dating on them. Um, but yeah, I forget how many, my colleague might remember, but it's, I think it's in the hundreds of these grape seeds that are left that have been carbonized. And, and this is, you know, about going back almost 3000 years. And so who knows what you can grow from those, right. <laughs> from those in the future. But yeah, I think if, if people want to, I mean, more and more archeological evidence comes out that I think is, is, uh, a wonderful support, uh, for the biblical text, the biblical narrative, especially in Jerusalem, um, but there is this this pushback that always comes up with a discovery, whether it proves or disproves right. the Bible. And I think most of most of it could be resolved with a pretty just good reading of the text. For example, they found a little piglet uh, in the eastern part of the city of David back, I think, a year ago now. And it's like, what in the world? I thought they were meant to be keeping, you know, kosher back then. Yeah. Well, Ex then read the prophets who are yelling at the Israelites that they're not keeping exactly. kosher proof. Yeah. And so there was, you know, the first reporting came out that said Israelites didn't keep kosher, mm -hmm. you know, and and it's like, well, yeah, read, you know, Isaiah. And <laughs> Isaiah was alive at that same period, and he's condemning people in Jerusalem for eating pig. Hello. So, yeah. you know, I think most of those things can be resolved in that yeah. way. No, it's just, uh, it is absolutely super exciting. Do you think there's more, you know, respect now for Israeli archaeologists than there used to be? Because, you know, you showed me around the Institute before. Amazing pictures on the wall of, you know, Armstrong together with Golda Meir and Menachem Begin. I mean, he's really in here at the very beginnings of the mm -hmm. state. And... Uh, I think at that time period, it was more foreign archaeologists that were coming. We didn't have the homegrown, really. And, uh, and it was a lot of, with their own devices and their own methodology, is there, like, is there an Israeli archaeology now, would you say, that differs perhaps from archaeology in another part of the world? I, I would say that um, Israeli archaeologists are top-notch. Yeah, really? absolutely. I don't think there's anyone that would... That would uh, look down upon any Israeli archaeologists. Now, I think the, the uh, Hebrew University is is a wonderful archaeological institution, um, uh, and they are doing wonderful work throughout Israel. 
Um, and you do often have, you know, an American university that's coming in and working alongside an Israeli in university. Mm-hmm. And, and that's happening more and more along with the Antiquities Authority as well. And so I don't think at all there's a second rate, you know, a second mm-hmm. tier that's going on. I think they're both, you know, both bringing wonderful additions uh, mm-hmm. to, to the projects. Um, and Israel can stand on its own in many ways in the archaeology that they're doing, uh, 100%. Amazing. It's such an exciting time. But uh, I, where people say coincidence, so that's where I see Hashem, like <laughs> that all this science is just coming now, right when we're having all these discoveries and just yearning to find out whether it's biblical, whether it's not. I'm not going to say it's irrelevant because plenty of the history is also post-biblical. Mm-hmm. I mean, everything Second Temple on is pretty much post-biblical. When we're talking Josephus or Herod, I mean, the, the canon was closed already by then. Um, and that's just as exciting. Or the Byzantine period or the different era periods. I mean, this country is one big, la- you know, one layer after the other. And it's absolutely amazing. Um, and a real joy and a privilege to be a part of that. And uh, I want to thank you so much for your time and for your expertise. And you got the bug, it looks like. Yeah. You're here in Jerusalem already for 16 years on and off. Yeah. Yep. And I've dragged my family over here, had three kids here now. Really? So I think we're not Israeli, but we're about as close as you can get, I believe. And, yeah. and it's the work that keeps us here. I mean, to be digging, like you say, in these areas where um, anywhere you put a spade, I think in Jerusalem, you're going to find significant remains. And where we get to dig the city of David and the Ophel, the real, like the, the focal point of biblical history. I mean, it's so unsurprising that you find those biblical figures there, or you find important uh, documentary evidence mm-hmm. of, of this, the important history that's written in history books, yeah. uh, including the Bible. So yeah, yeah. it's a wonderful honor. I mean, Bule, the names Jeremiah lists like a bunch of names. You're thinking like, why give us the details? And then you find the boule with these guys' names on it. You're like, well, that's why. Because right. we're going to be able, it's just, it's, a, it's an absolutely amazing thing. And uh, so again, thank you. And uh, we'll be in touch and let me know if anything else, you know, gets discovered that's like super cool. <laughs> it's all super cool. And we should just really try and keep the looters away because that's one of the big problems we have now is the theft. But I'm assuming that these places are protected and... As yeah, it's, if, it, if it's in Jerusalem, it's 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 highly protected. Yeah. Like if you're going to jump the fence and and try, the police will be there within about a minute. So uh, in these locations, so yeah, they're very well protected. Yeah, because there is no place like Jerusalem. Thank you so much, Brent. Eve Harrow, Rejuvenation on the Land of Israel Network. Wasn't that an interview worth waiting for, everybody? Take care. Thanks to Tabitha and to Ben, and I will be back next week. Write to me. Love to hear from you guys. Bye. My name is Jeremy Gimpel, and I live here in the mountains of Judea. And in these unprecedented times, I wanted to offer you a gift from the land of Israel. We've been here at the cutting edge of the Jewish return to the land of Israel. We've come to the place where King David first assembled his men and where he wrote most of the book of Psalms. We are quite literally transforming this desert mountain area into a Garden of Eden-like oasis. Watching prophecy manifest into reality, we felt called to reach out to the nations, to teach them lessons from the Bible in the original Hebrew, unlocking insights and understandings that you can only get if you read the text in its original language and from a Judean perspective. The prophet Zechariah spoke of a time that 10 men from all the nations will grab hold of the corner of a garment of a Judean man and say, take us with you for we have heard that God is with you. 
Perhaps this is the time that the righteous among the nations will now make a sharp U-turn and reconnect to Israel, reconnect to Judea, reconnect to the Hebrew roots of the spiritual realities of this world. This is an invitation to join us at our next live gathering with hundreds of families from over 30 countries around the world. And if you register now, we'll give you a free gift from Israel, the first five sessions that unlock the secrets of the Hebrew Bible and how to live as a believer in these times. I hope to see you at the Land of Israel Fellowship. Shalom.